Well, you can join me in grabbing a Bible and opening to the Gospel of Mark and chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, there's always some around the seats nearby you. And so I invite you to open up Mark 14 there, and we'll be looking on page 851 on, in those Bibles. Well, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark, and this morning we're coming to a story that uh, many are familiar with. It's the story of the Last Supper, and this sets the pattern for churches celebrating communion or the Lord's Supper. We eat meals all the time. It's something common to cultures throughout history and around the globe through ages. And of all the meals in all of human history, this one meal that we're going to read about on a Thursday night in Jerusalem is by far the most significant. There will be one more meal that will perhaps top this one when it happens, and I'll tell you about that meal at the end. But so far in human history, no meal has been as radically significant than this one. No Thursday evening has been as radically significant as the Thursday evening that we're going to read about. Now, we've all seen the Da Vinci painting with Jesus and his disciples on one side of the table. It's a beautiful painting, and it conveys a lot of meaning, but it can't communicate the significance of that meal as well as the text we're about to read together. It's what Jesus says here that is so revolutionary. It's at the heart of what made Christianity so revolutionary. So if you want to know what Jesus is all about, the Last Supper is one of the key ways you can find out. So let's read Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, and we'll go to verse 31. And we're just saying that these are words of power. Um, that enter into us, and we want them planted deep in us. And on the, oh, and the first day of unleavened bread, verse 12, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it's written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Verse 22, And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is, my body, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written in Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. 
But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster, the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these words of life and truth, and we pray that you would do the things that only you can do through this, that by your Holy Spirit you would take these and give us understanding in our minds, affection in our hearts, and a transformed life. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the final supper before Jesus' death, but it's not just the last supper. It's the start, the beginning of something new. And this shows us the heart of who Jesus is and why he came. So there's four main sections here in this text that we read. We see that there's this preparation for the meal. And then at the meal, there's the betrayal. And then the meal itself. And then the scattering. And all four of these sections show us that this evening is building up toward a singular event. So Jesus is helping his disciples through this evening understand the meaning and significance of his death, which is now just hours away. So he's not leaving the disciples and the rest of us to kind of figure out the meaning of his death after it happened. It certainly was not an accident. Jesus is not a victim. Jesus is showing that all of it is planned, and this was the road he intentionally walked down. And so this story is here then that we would worship Jesus. The Gospel of Mark was written so that we would know who Jesus is, why he came, and what it means to follow him, and that we would follow him. And so this story shows us who he is and why we follow him. This is the most important meal, most important Thursday night in human history, and as we see its significance, it should lead us to worship him. So we'll see this in these four sections. So we'll just walk through the four of them. So we'll see the preparation, the betrayal, the meal, and the scattering. So first, the preparation. So this is the final week of Jesus' life. It's the time of the Passover now. And to understand the context here, there were hundreds of thousands of Jewish people who traveled there year after year for this. And so his disciples asked, asked Jesus where they should eat the meal that night because everyone's preparing to eat the meal, right? It's somewhat like our context, Thanksgiving meal. Where are you going for Thanksgiving meal, right? Everyone is in town, hundreds of thousands of them, to eat it within the city limits of Jerusalem. So they asked Jesus where he has planned. Jesus' response shows that he's put a lot of planning into this. He tells them the plan, but it's curious. So look again at verses 13 to 16. He sends two disciples ahead of time, and here are his instructions. Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. We don't know whose house this is, but we do know that Jesus went back and forth to Jerusalem several times in his ministry. And so he probably had a number of friends and disciples who lived in Jerusalem. So someone who he's arranged with ahead of time, is providing a large upper room. 
This kind of room would have been hard to come by. I mean, with hundreds of thousands of Jewish people flooding this city as travelers, they all came to eat the Passover. So this would be like a few years ago when the Super Bowl came to Indy. You aren't going to get a hotel room, certainly not a big one, downtown Indy, unless you arrange for that ahead of time. And so Jesus does that. But he doesn't want the public to know. It's obviously been a lot of controversy. He knows he's about to get arrested and crucified. And so he's not avoiding that necessarily, but he has his own plan of timing. And so he wants to have this meal with his disciples uninterrupted beforehand. So he plans this in such a way that's kind of a covert plan. So the master of the house will send a servant to carry a water jug who will meet the disciples. So this was probably a reasonable sign because at the time women usually the ones carrying water. And if a man did, he didn't use a jar, he used skins. And so the disciples meet this guy, they go to the home, they find the big upper room already furnished for them. Now, it's interesting that Mark spends some time here with these details, isn't it? Um, We aren't used to thinking of Jesus planning and coordinating things like this, which gives dignity to those of you who do a lot of planning and meal coordinating like this. Um, But we can tend to make this story more mystical than it is because we don't think of Jesus this way, as if the homeowner or water boy didn't know what was going on. Jesus has this divine understanding of what's going to happen. They kind of go into a trance, and it's all just happening. But Jesus clearly planned this, and in a way that kept his disciples under the radar as this was going on. So he knows the leaders want to get him, so he's being secretive. He knows he'll be arrested, and he wants to make sure he has this meal with his disciples in private first. So now, why is that so significant? Because Mark seems to be going out of his way to show these details of Jesus coordinating and planning this. Could seem at first like they're unnecessary, but there was another time Jesus did something similar to this, and Mark drew attention to that as well. It was when Jesus entered Jerusalem earlier that week on Palm Sunday. We refer to as the triumphal entry. The same thing happened. He sent two disciples, just like he did here, and they were to meet someone in this kind of covert mission. They said they'd find a cult and to tell the owner that it's for the Lord. And the owner would agree and let them take the cult for Jesus to use. And what was Jesus up to? Well, he, was, he wasn't just kind of stealing that cult for a time. He had coordinated that ahead of time because he wanted to stage a symbolically charged entry into Jerusalem. Because everyone knew the symbolism of riding on a colt into Jerusalem, it had happened before with other people, it's fulfilling prophecies from Zechariah of the king coming into his city um, on this colt. And so he's planning this because he wants everyone to know and for it to be unmistakably clear who he is and what he's come to do. And so now he's coordinating something again and sending two disciples to meet someone covertly because he's setting something up. What is he up to? Well, he's, he's planning to do another symbolically charged action. He's planning a meal that he will use to communicate something radical about himself. So he didn't just happen to be at Jerusalem at Passover time. It's not just that Jesus was going through his ministry. He happened to be at Jerusalem. It just happened to be Passover, and it just happened to be when he was crucified. It wasn't coincidence that he died at Passover. He planned it that way. And this isn't just speculation. Um, This wasn't just like, um, you know, he's at a birthday dinner 
And then he thought, you know, I can see I'm probably going to die pretty quickly. This meal's as good as any other. Let me see if I can find some symbolism in the candles and balloons here to tie um, to what I'm going to do as kind of a teaching moment. Um, No, all the way back in Mark chapter 8, Jesus was telling his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected by the leaders. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to rise. He's telling them this repeatedly, and then he sets his sight to Jerusalem, and from chapter 8 through 11, he's going straight there to Jerusalem. He planned how long it would take and when he would arrive. And so he intentionally arrived at Jerusalem, knowing he would die, and he did it. He planned his arrival to be at Passover. And when he shows up in Jerusalem, he coordinates ahead of time this Passover meal to make it unmistakably clear what he is up to. He planned this final, explosively significant meal, and he wants his disciples and all of us to understand his death in relation to the Passover. So what is so significant about Passover? Well, we'll see that in a moment, but first, we go to the second section here, which is the betrayal. Jesus and his disciples come to the upper room at night, and as they're eating, Jesus tells them that he's going to be betrayed. This is verse 18. He says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. So this is actually the moment that da Vinci painted, the moment when Jesus announces his betrayal. Um, But actually, whether on purpose or not, doesn't matter, but the, the painting is of the disciples kind of on one side of the table, kind of like a wedding party, right? Which I always feel a little bad for because they can't like talk to people like the rest of us. They're sitting all looking at everyone. But that's not how this would have been. They, this would have been in the center of a room. The food would have been very low to the ground, perhaps in a kind of a you or a horseshoe. And they would have been on low couches or, or near the floor, laid out, extended, reclining. So feet going backwards in every direction as they lean into the table on their side and eat. That's how it would have been at that time. So they're sitting around the table, and then Jesus brings up and announces that he's going to be betrayed. And it's interesting, the disciples don't start looking around and saying, is it you? They say, is it I? But there's one man sitting there who knows it's him, because Judas has already been talking with the leaders about how to get Jesus. And so Jesus says in verse 20, it's one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. So here again, Jesus is composed, and he's in control. Judas thinks he's being sneaky, and Jesus not only knows, he wants everyone to know he knows. He brought this up because he wants this to be, again, unmistakably clear. He is not a victim. He's not surprised by any of this. He's marching into it. And it's not just that he was able to read the situation that week well. He's announcing it because he knows it's going to happen because This was ordained for him, down to the detail. The betrayal itself is a fulfillment of Scripture. He says in verse 21, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. He's going to be betrayed, and he says, yes, because I'm going to go as it's written of me. He's probably referring to something that happened to King David, because David's life is a pattern for the life of Jesus, this king who suffers and then is glorified. And David, the way he writes of his own life in the Psalms, he writes bigger than life because he knows he's himself a pattern of the Messiah to come, and he's constantly prophesying ahead of time. And so in Psalm 41.9, David says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. 
And now Jesus is saying, I'm the new David, and this friend who is eating my bread will betray me. Now there's mystery here, of course. It's a mysterious combination of the Lord's, God's sovereignty over the situation and human responsibility. We see this mysterious tension throughout the Bible, and it's right here again in verse 21. Jesus says, for the Son of Man goes as it's written of him, meaning this is inevitable, it's going to happen, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he'd not been born. So Jesus' betrayal is ordained, it's written ahead of time, but it's also true that the man who betrays him is responsible. It's a combination and tension throughout the Bible, especially in these events surrounding the death of Jesus. I mean, if you think about the cross itself, the evil that happened to Jesus is truly evil, and those who did these things to him are responsible, and yet it all happened according to God's plan. The Bible holds God's sovereignty and human responsibility together all throughout in a mysterious way so that even his betrayals ordained, and yet Judas does it of his own will. And Judas is also a warning to us. He shows that you can go as far as you want in religion and still be lost and not know Jesus truly. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin put it simply like this, Judas heard all of Christ's sermons. And he still does this. This tells us something about ourselves. Third now, the meal. This is verses 22 through 26. The disciples are completely unprepared for the explosive words he's about to say. They assume, no doubt, this will be a typical Passover, one that they've experienced their whole lives. But then Jesus takes this sacred meal and radically redefines it around himself. Here's how. So the Passover meal was a feast to remember the Exodus. The Exodus was this time when God rescued the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. And for Israel, the Exodus was the key event in their history. God even reset their calendar at the Exodus. This is the new, the new year for you all. So their salvation, their deliverance was set by the Exodus. Um, and what happened there is that on the first night of Exodus, God's judgment fell over the land. The firstborn son of every home would die. But God gave a provision of grace. He said to sacrifice a lamb and then put the blood over your doorpost. And that night God would send an angel to destroy and take the lives of the firstborn of the whole land. But any home that had that blood put over the doorframe would be spared. The, the judgment would pass over them and they would not fall under the judgment. And so they look back to that day and eat the meal. It was their independence day it was their Thanksgiving Day, it was their New Year's Day, all of it wrapped into one. And God even said, as he was preparing them for this, he even gave instructions for the meal they would have celebrating it from then on out. God wanted this to be at the center and heart of their life together. And so they ate the Passover meal to remember that night. And the host would explain the meal. So Jesus starts explaining the meal as the host, as they would have expected him to do. But they expected Jesus to say what all the other hosts around Jerusalem would be saying that Passover. They'd expect him to say, this is the bread of our affliction, right? our affliction in Egypt, these are the bitter herbs and so forth. But instead, Jesus redefined the meal according, around himself. So he takes the bread 
And he said, this is my body. And then he took the cup, verse 23. He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He's saying this meal used to represent and point back to the Exodus redemption, but now it's referring to me. He's saying, I'm going to lead you in a new and greater Exodus redemption. This meal will no longer be about remembering the first Exodus, but the cross. This is about me. The prophet said this day would come. Jeremiah even said, as central as the first Exodus was for Israel, as the key defining event for their life together and their identity, he said a time will come when that first one will be forgotten because a new one will come. And Jesus is saying it's now here. It's explosive. This is just as radical as Jesus flipping over tables in the temple. If he had gathered a crowd and said this kind of thing in public, they would have crucified him right there. It would have been over. He's taking Israel's sacred meal and he's saying, it is now fulfilled in him. And the focal point of this is how his death is a sacrifice for sin. So at the first exodus, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, there was this great deliverance. But the, the moment when the Passover lamb is sacrificed and blood is put on the doorpost and then God passes over them is an amazing moment because in the previous plagues, they were for Egypt. God is judging Egypt for oppressing Israel and he's setting Israel free. But in this last final plague, it falls indiscriminately over Israel and Egypt because this is not just the deliverance of the oppressed from the oppressor. All of them are guilty before the Lord. All of them are sinful. All of them need deliverance, Israelite and Egyptian alike. The judgment will fall on everyone. If nobody had slaughtered any Passover lamb that night, Israel would have been wiped out as well with their firstborn sons taken. So this, the lamb then is an opportunity to spare them as they let it die in their place. And Jesus chose to die at Passover to make it unmistakably clear not only that he is the new Passover lamb, but that first Passover was all about him in the first place. God set it up to prepare the people for the day when Jesus would come to Jerusalem over Passover and be slain. And this is how God's judgment passes over us. As we trust in Jesus, what it means to trust him is to take his blood and put it over the door frame of your life so that the final judgment that is coming for every human being will pass over you because it fell on Jesus and he was slain for us. I don't have time to go into detail here, but the words Jesus uses here that we just read are thick with allusions to a few Old Testament texts. And in particular, he's actually alluding to three different sacrifices text in the Old Testament. One is this Passover sacrifice. Another is the sacrifice that was given for Israel's covenant when they actually entered into the covenant at Sinai with the Lord. And then the third is Isaiah 53, which speaks of this great sacrifice to come, the servant who will come and be a faithful Israelite who will give his life 
for his people, dying in their place and then rise again. And Jesus, the words Jesus uses here are pulling on and echoing, quoting and alluding these different strands of sacrifice. So Jesus is saying, in other words, he's not just the Passover sacrifice, he's all of them. All of the strands of sacrifice in the Old Testament come together in Jesus. Nobody, as far as we know from any other writings, nobody had ever thought that would happen in a singular sacrifice. And Jesus shows up and radically redefines the meal and pulls all these threads together. And he says, they're all coming to fulfillment in me. Which is why he flipped the tables in the temple in in part because you do not need a temple anymore. He's the true temple. He's the true sacrifice. And he's giving himself for them. So Jesus is saying to them, that all the Old Testament sacrifices were a shadow. And it was a shadow cast by an event that is now just a few hours away. He's saying, you may not understand what we're doing here in Jerusalem tonight. You may be very confused about what's about to happen to me within a few hours now, but make no mistake, this is planned. This is how I set you free. This is how I forgive you. This is how I redeem you. From now on, you will not be celebrating this yearly Passover meal to celebrate the Exodus. You will be celebrating the cross. And this has been God's plan all along. This was God's plan from the very beginning of history. Ever since sin entered the world, God promised to undo its consequences for us. And he instituted sacrifices all along to make the point clear, we deserve to die, but God will make a way. And animal sacrifices couldn't do it. They pointed forward to Jesus, and now he's here. And it's no accident. He's no victim. He is the final sacrifice. It's what this meal means. It's what makes all the other sacrifices and the temple irrelevant from that point on, which is itself revolutionary. Now the final part, the scattering. This is verses 27 to 31. If we didn't know what was to come next, what would you expect to have what would you expect to happen at this point? What would we hope for? Well, as I pause here, I would hope that the disciples would weep with a sober joy and bow down and worship. To be baffled by the mystery of it all. To grasp that their truest friend here is God himself in the flesh come as the fulfillment of these ages of sacrifice, to bring all of their history and the great story of humanity to its central point here. And they would bow down and worship him. And then I'd expect them to stick with him and worship him and not leave his his side. But Jesus says what's going to happen. Verse 27 is pretty abrupt. You will all fall away. You're not going to stick with me. You're all going to be cowards. Isn't that amazing? And once again, Jesus says this too is in fulfillment of ancient promises. He quotes the prophet Zechariah here in verse 27. He says, you will all fall away for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is the shepherd. He's about to be struck. And when he is, the disciples will all flee. They're all going to run away. Peter protests in verse 29. He says that even if everyone else falls away, I won't. Right? He's always the most confident in his abilities to stay faithful to Jesus. And so Jesus seems to have a special word about him for his spectacular failure that's hours away. 
Verse 30, he says to them, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter's not the only one. Verse 31, I mean, the disciples aren't sitting there saying, I can't believe he said that. Right? No. They, he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I won't deny you. And they all said the same. So this tells us something about us, and this tells us something about Jesus. What does it tell us about ourselves? We are self-confident. We think we can hold fast to Jesus on our own. We can tend to make all kinds of promises about how faithful we're going to be to him. And yet we are prone to wander and fail. And what does this tell us about Jesus? He knows they're going to fail, and he still dies for them. He's not surprised by their failure. He's the only one who knows it's going to happen, and he's going to the cross to die for them, knowing full well that they're about to abandon him. Look at Peter, full of self-confidence, to the point of correcting Jesus and talking back, and yet he's going to deny him three times. And so here's the question. Does Jesus love him any less? Is Jesus any less willing to die for him when he makes these foolish protests, foolish self-confident protests? No. Peter is precisely the kind of person that Jesus has come to die for. He's not surprised by your sin. You have never done a single thing that Jesus was surprised by. You may have done things that you haven't told anyone about. Things that you know if you did, they'd be utterly shocked. And by the way, you may need to come out of hiding and walk in the light. But the point here is that Jesus is not shocked. He knows it happened. He knew it would happen. If you are in Christ, then Jesus died for you knowing full well not only what you are capable of, but what you would actually spectacularly do and the foolishness you'd step into. But if you are trusting him, his death is for you, and not begrudgingly. He's forgiven you and declared you righteous, and he did it knowing full well the sins you would still do. J.I. Packer put it this way, God justified you with, so to speak, his eyes wide open. He knew the worst about you at the time when he accepted you for Jesus' sake. And the verdict which he passed then was and is final. So how do we respond to this? Well, some of you may be too confident in your grip on Jesus. You're like the disciples, making promises of faithfulness, and sometimes you actually make them right after you fail epically. You promise it will be the last time. Surely this will be the last time. You promise you'll do better the next time. And he sees right through to your heart and to your inability to make good on that promise. In all your confidence, he knows what's about to happen. And he sees right through it all. And so if this is you, you need to let go of your self-confidence. You need to put your confidence not in your grip on Jesus, but more confidence in his grip on you. Others of you don't have confidence in yourselves. But maybe you have such low confidence in your ability to follow Jesus by his strength that it keeps you from him. Maybe you think, 
What's the point of repenting and turning to Jesus again if I'm just going to screw up again? You think, I can make all the promises I want to him, but I know I'm going to fail again. And so you don't trust yourself to keep trusting in him. If that's you, don't let your lack of ability to hold fast to Jesus be what keeps you from him. Let that be how you come to him. Come to him with that lack of self-confidence. Come to him acknowledging that the only way you're going to make it is if he has a grip on you and if he empowers you by the Holy Spirit. Faith is not about self-confidence, even in our ability to trust. It's about trusting in his ability to hold fast to us. So you may think, but I have sinned against so much grace. I've walked with Jesus. I've heard sermons. I've read the Bible. I've been in Bible studies. I've led Bible studies. I had Christian parents who invested in me. I've had so much, and I still blew it all away with my moral failure. And Jesus says in this text, yes, just like the disciples who heard all my sermons and were at this very meal and fled in my hour of need. Or you may think, I'm cowardly. I give up when it's hard. When I know people at my workplace will dismiss me for identifying with Jesus and his teaching, I keep quiet. And the message of this text says, yes, just like Peter, who denied me when a servant woman asked him if he knew me. Or you may think, but my sin is particularly grievous. And this says, like Peter, who denied Jesus three times. Or you think, but I'm fickle. I'm on and off with Jesus. And Jesus says, like my disciples who promised to hold fast to me and then all fled and ran away within hours. The good news of this text is that the Gospel of Luke draws attention to this. Peter did deny him, but Jesus said, I prayed for you. Satan asked to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. And after you fall away, you will be restored and you will strengthen the brothers. And he did. Turn the page of the book of Acts and you will see, bold like a lion, Peter. That wasn't because Peter just all of a sudden figured out to how to find his inner self. The Holy Spirit came down and Jesus' prayer for him was answered. This is about Jesus' grip on us. Romans 5 verse 8 summarizes the point here which you read, we read earlier today. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All right, it gets better. I mentioned at the beginning that this meal is the most significant meal in history, but it's only the most significant one in history so far. There's going to be another meal that surpasses it, and Jesus tells, about, tells us about it right here in verse 25. He says, the cup represents his blood, and then he says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So, when Jesus points to this cup and raise this cup, it's not going to be the last time he does it. He'll do it again. There's a greater meal that that meal points to. It's a meal that he'll serve when he returns. Jesus didn't die for us just to be forgiven, but for us to be with him forever. This is his deepest heart, for us to be with him, to know him and enjoy his true friendship. And he's saying, when my kingdom comes in its fullness, 
I will raise this cup again. I will drink this wine again. And it will be in celebration of the victory of my death and resurrection for you. And you'll be there, not because of the strength of your grip on me, but because of the strength of my grip on you, empowering you to hold fast to me with whatever weak grip you'll be able to muster. Jesus is looking forward to that day. You can hear the earnestness even in his voice here. He is more eager to see you on that day than we are and you are to see him. And he's eager to share that joy with all who trust him. Again, the gospel is the good news of forgiveness, not just so that we can have the status of forgiven, but so that we can be brought near and feast with him and enjoy him and his people forever. So in response, let's trust him empowered by his own work in our hearts to trust him. If you've not yet come to Christ, you can trust him right now, receive his grace. And for all who are trusting him, let's just lodge all our confidence in him. And if we should fail again, the Apostle John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. But if anyone does, he is an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus is interceding for us, and he's doing it knowing full well what we're capable of, knowing full well what we'll do, and he loves us no less. It's the point. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love that you've poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Thank you for displaying your love in Jesus. Lord Jesus, we praise you and worship you for your determination to walk through the plan of our salvation and walk into Jerusalem that week and coordinate that meal and tell us what it means for us. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for being poured out into our hearts that we might have eyes to see the beauty of Jesus and hands to receive. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.